0: This is the Five Heart Podcast, and tonight I am in charge. John Johnston, the guy that runs Corn Nation, because Greg Mahochko and Haas could not, either one of them, be with us tonight because of family obligations or other things that happen, but I am joined by two beautiful women that write on my website, Beth Merrigan and Jill, the ranch babe, how are you both doing?
1: Great. (laughs) I'm okay. Volleyball's over, so I'm sad, but I'm good otherwise. (laughs) You have to say, happy that uh, Christmas is about here because I get to hang out with my oldest kid home from college, so that's always a good couple of weeks and i've got the little kids so i've got the pure christmas joy in my kids
0: okay so so jill you have the older kids beth you have the your kids are very young
1: yeah my uh, oldest is 7 and my youngest is 3 and four of them total
0: oh so they still they still believe in santa claus
1: oh yeah not even a not even a whiff of anything else
0: oh my god was well, that a magical time in our lives, Jill?
1: Oh absolutely. They're awesome at that age. Except for the three year olds. Like I could have locked my kids in, in a closet until they were four, but I guess that probably shouldn't be published, should it?
0: <laughs> okay, well I have to confess and and part of those no, I'm not gonna say that. Um I still want to believe in Santa Claus. I still, I do, because there's there's a beauty about this time of the year. There's a beauty in the magic of the season, the Christmas, and the giving and the joy, and peace on earth and goodwill toward one. Man, even though we don't, you know, necessarily practice that in our lives all the time, there's such a beauty in it, but Stanford crushed Wisconsin, Beth
1: that was quite the intro to that. Um, yes, yes, they did. That the last part I can say with all certainty that Stanford crushed Wisconsin and the round before Stanford crushed Minnesota and the round before Stanford crushed Penn state. I mean, the the amount of big 10 teams that Stanford crushed in this tournament is, um, not a happy one for big 10 fans in general, but, um, Yeah, in the most recent match, Stanford was just clearly better than Wisconsin in lots of facets of the game. And, um, you know, they beat them in their own game, essentially. Wisconsin is usually one of the best serving teams in the country, and they are. But Stanford was way better at serving, and Wisconsin probably had more reception errors, you know, than They've had all season, and that includes some of their early season losses. So I, it was an odd thing to see Wisconsin taken apart as they were by Stanford.
0: Do you think that's Do you think that's largely because they hadn't been there before? I mean, well, how much? How much? I mean, when you're going into see, I'm the guy that I'm way more about the mental aspect of the game, and if, for people to listen to podcasts, they know that um is it is it really hard you coached is it really hard when you get to a level and you go let's not freak out here which really means let's freak out here
1: right yeah preparing for something that you've never experienced before it's hard to recreate that in a practice setting or even in a a game before the big game setting. So you, yeah, you've got to do some mental preparation, but even when you do that mental preparation, you don't truly know if the team is mentally prepared until they step out into the court and they pass the first ball. And um, But I don't know, you know, Wisconsin's played on big stages. They've gotten to semifinals. They've gotten to elite eights. They've got an Olympian on their team. So, you know, and the whole team didn't, play badly there's a couple players that that did have bad games um, but I don't think it was a stage that that messed Wisconsin up on the whole but yeah for those couple players it might have been um, some stage fright some you know lights turned on and the, the nerves tensed up um, but in all in all they didn't play a, um, a bad game Stanford, of course, has played there before and showed no signs of jitters or nerves, no errors that I could say, oh, yeah, she's a little too jazzed up for this game. She got too hyped, and now she's hitting the ball out of bounds. Um, but Wisconsin had a lot of errors. I, I could say, yeah, maybe 20% of Wisconsin errors happened off of you know nerves, too hyped, um, not played in this situation enough times. But I don't think... You know they're big stars: Sidney Hilly, their setter; Dana Retke, their big middle. I don't think they played at a level that would say, "Yeah, she she's not been here before; she's not playing well." Catherine Plummer. Oh my goodness, she is. Um, she's like no player that I know how to compare her to. I listen. Karch Karai is one of the announcers and also the national team women's coach. And um, I don't know who to compare her to. She dominates the game in such a way that I don't know what player before her or current is comparable. Um, she's six. And Dominic Sue. That would be, that would be comparable. A LeBron James sort of thing. She's just, she's bigger. She's better. She's more calm about the game. She's got this zen quality to her on the court. Um, she doesn't, you know, jump amazing, but she's 6'6", so she doesn't have to. She's really strong, and she's just fundamentally, she plays the game with so much knowledge and skill that um, it's, it's hard to compare her to anybody inside the game of volleyball, including players on the national team okay so Morgan has a long career in international volleyball i think so i i think she's gonna um i'm curious to see how she translates you know she's a senior so she's done in the college game i'm i'm curious to see how she translates internationally um if she is on the olympic team you know she didn't play this last summer i i don't know why um with the qualifying for the olympics and there were some college players that played with the national team. Um, I'm curious to see how Catherine Plummer translates because I think it'll be great, but I haven't seen it yet. And um, she's made no announcements or so. let's see how she does for team USA now.
0: Okay. What about Morgan Hentz?
1: Morgan Hentz is amazing as well. Um, the libero for Stanford does things in the defensive world that are hard to replicate. You know, she very flexible very fast great ability to read to see what's about to happen in the play and um you know digs balls the the defender for wisconsin is also um excellent tiffany clark she's a senior as well and when you were able to watch the two across the court from each other morgan Hens was another step above tiffany clark and tiffany clark has been amazing all year long for wisconsin so just yeah just another example of Stanford being visibly better than Wisconsin in this match um, and and out digging balls, out, you know, reading them, just not making errors. Um, Stanford was largely error free um, during this match and during the whole tournament. You know, one of their hitters came into this match and she had hit 70 odd balls throughout the tournament and made zero errors. That's unbelievable. She was hitting above 500 for the whole tournament. That's that's unbelievable. Compare that
0: uh, to, uh, okay, I'll say this. For uh, dumb males that are listening to this, compare that to, like, baseball.
1: Right. It's the closest thing in sports that a, a volleyball hitting percentage can be to a batting average. So, really, yes, if a player was hitting 500 – over a 70-at-bat appearance, that would be comparable. And so you'd say, that's unbelievable. You can't be- believe that somebody could do that with such efficiency um, in in volleyball.
0: And yet they did it. You know what they didn't do this year? They didn't run into their locker room and show a whiteboard with a gun. <laughs> in think and they a cleaned that up
1: pretty good. Grass.
0: <laughs> and then we we didn't all have to freak out about how bad sportsmanship and just yeah oh god this is terrible and
1: everything whatever yeah uh, uh yeah I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen this year i am curious right. Seth, you know, with nebraska having no seniors what do you think the ceiling is for the huskers next year i right yeah nebraska has an exciting season in front of them um You've got all the players coming back, plus a couple of recruits coming in, and it's always hard to know how big a, a recruit is going to make an impact. I had I knew Maddie Kubik was good, but I had no idea how good and how well she'd perform in the college game. So, um, you know what we know is we've got all the players coming back, um, and so they've got a great a great look next season. The the bad news, uh, Wisconsin has a lot of their players coming back too. They really just lose three of the primary players that played this year um Madison Duwello is the right side for Wisconsin she'll graduate Tiffany Clark the libero I mentioned and then one of their DSs Emmy Dodge will graduate so all the major players for Wisconsin are coming back um, Penn State returns a lot um, Baylor returns Yasiana Presley that amazing outside she comes back and their setter who was an all American. She comes back. So I think Nebraska will be good, but we know Minnesota, have- loses,
0: Minnesota loses a lot of seniors.
1: Yeah. They'll lose, um, Hart, one of their outside hitters who was great. She'll graduate. And then their transfer setter, Kylie Miller, she'll graduate. Um, but they'll get everybody else, you know, somebody will come back, right. She's a senior next year um is it so Taylor sing her? i don't think so no i think she'll come back oh. as well so yeah minnesota so will be strong again
0: big, the big 10 is going to be tough as hell again
1: yeah i think purdue will be right in there as well um purdue graduates uh one but they'll have all their major players back um So, and, you know, the big thing that um, if you don't graduate your setter, the one team we talked about that does graduate their setter is Minnesota. um, You know, that's your quarterback. That's the person that's got to run the offense, understand the offense, have a rhythm with their hitters. And so none of those teams are graduating setters. Um, Stanford graduated their setter and a lot of their players. Stanford was heavy seniors. But, um, yeah, Nebraska, along with a few other teams, has – a lot of brightness for their next year.
0: All right. So I'm trying to get this on. CeCe McGraw, my rotten son, has informed me as a good friend of his. Ah. And he, he, he attends the University of Minnesota. I don't know if that's true or not. I think he just says that so that he kind of goes, yeah, I know women or something. Um, <laughs> his girlfriend is in the band, in the marching band, and she does get to go to the Outback Bowl. But, oh, wow. okay, volleyball. The big news of volleyball was that John Cook lost a coach.
1: Yeah. But he does well, about every year now, doesn't he? He is, yeah,
0: he is. Three of the last years so what do you let's speculate let's have fun with this who's going to be the john cook there's been speculation about his retirement i think i just made that up because john cook is a fine young man at the age of probably 50 he's younger than i am probably he's certainly not as screwed up as i am um he's going to be around for a while we hope could Danny Busboom Kelly be the next head coach in Nebraska?
1: I mean sure, she sure could. Um she's been at Louisville for three years and we know Louisville had a great year this year. They beat Texas in the Elite Eight. Is that right? No, before that, yes. the Sweet Sixteen. Louisville beat Texas in the sweet sixteen. Um they did it with um Lauren Stirber and the younger sister Amber Stiverens and a couple other really great players. Um yeah, she sure could. She's but I, I don't know what they're looking for in their next head coach, you know, and I don't I agree with you. I don't think they're looking, right? John Cook. Um Yeah, I don't think he's that close to retiring. He seems and I like think he's, he's older than you, John. <laughs> I think he's early sixties, isn't he, Beth? I I do not keep track of coaches' ages. I do not know. <laughs> He he seems younger than he is. I I remember being surprised at how old he was.
0: Sixty three years old. He was born on April nineteenth, nineteen fifty six, in Chula Vista, California. On the other hand, Jill, nobody's older than me, really.
1: Mm, that's just according to Hoff. <laughs>
0: So he, John Cook, 63 years old. Um, oh, I don't know. We are, it's a reach, isn't it? God, I hope John I think Cook- what I'm
1: also interested in, though, is who is going to be the next assistant. You know, Kayla Van heading to Old Miss. The interesting to see what she does there. They're a 500-team average season in the SEC but who will become his next assistant, right? Because if we're watching these assistants go on to nice Division One programs and do nice things at them, then who's the next assistant? And, um, yeah, is it, do who you think will he... Justine Wong-Narantis will come back this fast? Because I know he talked about her as an assistant, but he told her to go coach somewhere else before she came back to Nebraska. And I have no reason to. Suspect this but that's one of the only names. I know so that's why I'm throwing it out Well, and she's um, still training with the national team. It's not that you know It's not always a full-time gig but as they gear up for the Olympics it becomes so she's still competing to be that libero for the national team And um, he seems to like coach cook likes to have former players, right? He doesn't just take the random volleyball person in the world no matter how great they are so i don't know i don't know who's ready to cycle back through um we Can know I ask this? Terry yeah, Pettit ahead.
0: had a Terry Pettit had a book on volleyball and then John mm-hmm. Cook had a book on volleyball have, have you guys read those books
1: i have read no. John Cook's and i've listened to Terry Pettit's podcast but i haven't read his book
0: I think, you know, I think that I read a, a ton of books. I do. I read books and books and books and books. But um, I, I, I think that when a coach, when a football coach writes a book, 90% of the time it's a glory story. Okay? It's about, it's like a business book. It's like he's going, I'm going to retire from coaching and I want you to pay me $15,000 to do uh, motivational speaking. When when John Cook wrote, had his book done by Brandon Vogel, who I love Brandon, he's a friend of mine, but um, I mean, Terry Bett- Pettit wrote his book. Neither one of those were really glory story books. They were more really about how do we do this, and how do we compete? And how do we get things done? And one of the things that struck me about John Cook's book was that he said a lot of volleyball coaches do not continue to coach like fundamentals during the season. In other words, they coach fundamentals during the offseason, and then they, during the season, they stop. And he doesn't do that.
1: Yeah, he even talked about ramping up the fundamentals as they came deeper into the tournament or exited from the Big Ten season, and that the fundamentals were the things that he was going to emphasize as they um, came and into he calls more the competitive training, right? Because he, he, he talks about a lot of coaches' scrimmage, and he's like, no, mm-hmm. we train. <laughs> Am I right in interpreting that?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: I think, um, you know, I, think I know would say he's a teacher first, right? He's teaching the game and I thought in his book he was doing that, spreading knowledge and sharing that with his wide of an audience that wanted to have it and this is how we do volleyball as a teacher of volleyball who has clearly been successful.
0: I don't know. I I find it amazing that some of these guys, you know, when you're a coach, you're also a teacher when you're a really good coach. And, uh, you know, when we go through our lives, it, me and IT, you know, I run into a lot of guys that are like, they don't share their knowledge at all. They're like, I'm jealous of, you know, I'm this guy that maybe it's IT. I don't know. But that concept that that some guy would write a book and share a bunch of knowledge is I, I guess for a coach you don't see that I don't think a lot in college football coaches books like I said most of them are glory stories but hmm, there you go
1: well, <laughs> even if you look at coach's approach to his assistants, he lets them do a lot of the coaching in games you don't see him in the huddles as much as you do other head coaches, he's really teaching them and letting them teach the players is my impression. Yeah. I think he has the idea that he has these coaches there. He's obviously hired them and they, they probably specialize in the certain areas. And so they are coaching them more. Like we didn't see Kayla Banworth in the huddles as much because she was talking more one-on-one with setters and, Liberos, but um, we are going to see this this next coach potentially specialize more in the setting and the defense. Again, um, whoever this next assistant coach is.
0: Okay, can I ask some stupid questions about volleyball, Beth?
1: Yes, let's talk stupid questions.
0: When a person, when a let's say Michaela Fecky. Hits a kill. How fast is that ball going?
1: You know, somebody asked us on one of the um, game feeds, and I looked it up because I don't know the answer to that. And um, I looked at a couple of places, and I got to around 80 miles per hour. So I don't know that is the answer, but that's the research I did. What I do know is um, one of the techniques I've seen and we used when I coached was to – use one of the you know police radar guns on serve so we would tell our players you know we wanted the serve to be flat to the net really close to the top of the net below the height of the antenna and we wanted it to be over 60 miles per hour and so that makes sense to me then that when you're attacking the ball you have more momentum you can get more speed on it would get up to 80 miles per hour
0: so people can serve a ball at 60 miles an hour Yes, <laughs> that sounds that's terrible. remarkable.
1: Because I was watching my son try out some golf clubs, and I think the the speed of the club as he was swinging on the machines they had was like in the eighties. And so, for somebody to spike a ball with their arm versus you know a metal rod, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, someone's gonna have to to do this, to radar gun. And I'm sure coaches have done it, but I, this is, this is what I've, what I've read. I think I'm quoting you good information.
0: Okay. So given that, when you have like, again, let's say a Taylor Morgan from Minnesota or a uh, Laura Stiverens, the new freshman we have uh, spiking a ball or hitting a ball, the reaction time of a libero to get that dig is what?
1: So the that player, the defensive player, is watching the hitter, right? They're, they're watching the ball, but they're mostly watching the hitter, the hand, and the shoulders of that hitter. So, I mean, it's half a second, a second. Um, so, and then – that's why sometimes it looks ridiculous that if the ball touches the block just a little bit and it moves the ball over just a touch that it looks ridiculous that she couldn't dig it, but she's watching the hand, she's watching the arm of the player. She thinks she sees the angle that she's hitting it at. You'll hear the announcers talk about, you know, the hitter dropping her thumb that changes the angle the ball comes at. So um, yeah, not much time at all. So So if your hand is hitting the ball, you've got your hand flat, you're hitting the ball. If you drop your thumb down, like to the ground, it changes the whole angle that you're hitting the ball at and where the ball is going to be hit. So one shot that, you know, Michaela Fecky is going to hit is, you know, a thumb down shot, and she's going to turn her shoulders one direction and her hand the opposite direction. And that will fool the defensive players risk away Uh, shot you might hear somebody talk about i know i might have to do videos this summer to explain what i'm talking about right now. you know what it
0: it might be interesting if you did that i think it would be interesting you know because i mean i mean put it this way i mean people people are okay not everybody i'm not I'm not a great sports guy, I understand football, but I also understand somewhat of baseball where you're throwing a like a knuckleball, a curve, a slider. It's the same thing, right?
1: Right, the pitcher's hand position, the rotation of the arm, the rotation of the wrist. Yeah, so you, you're comparing that to the hit I was just describing? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so the hitter is, yes, playing the pitcher in this role um and and turning the ball you know she's not going to necessarily put the spin on that's not in a hit that's not going to de- field to confuse the defense but the way her hand and her wrist and her shoulders rotate is part of the shot that fools the defense and so somebody like Michaela fecky somebody like katherine Plummer, has so many more shots than you know maddie Kubick is really impressive but she doesn't have the same number of shots like the same number of pitches that a pitcher has. She's going to get more shots in this offseason, right? That's the number one thing that somebody's going to work with her over the offseason. But when you have 20 different shots you can hit, that's when you're beating the defense because
0: what? they adjust what?
1: you, they go in your hole, and then you use your second shot and your third shot and your 20th shot. Um, what do you mean so you 20? Not only the block. Yes, yes. So Okay, so the block is I mean, listen, away. if
0: you're going to be if you're going to go from college, if you're going to be a if you're going to be a college pitcher in baseball, and everybody knows, I think that if you're going to be a good college pitcher, you have to have three good pitches, not 20. And you're telling right. me that they can have 20 different shots in volleyball?
1: Well, yes, but the the court is a lot bigger than the plate, right? So, if If Catherine Plummer is going to hit the line, right, she's on the left-hand side of the court and she's going to hit the line, she can hit that a couple different ways. So there's two shots there that she has, right? And so I'm hitting the ball in the same spot, but in one shot, I face my shoulders totally towards the line and I just hit it down the line. In another shot, I turn my shoulders away from that line and then I hit it over my shoulder. So the volleyball court's bigger than the plate. Yes, an outside hitter can have 20 shots. She can roll the ball when it looks like she's going to hit the ball hard. Um, yeah, it's, um, I would even say you could have more than that. If you um, if you think about hitting from the back row, you just made a whole different lineup of shots that are using the same fundamentals, the same basis of skills. Um, but with repetition and practice and, you know, improved skill, you get a new shot.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Jill? I'm impressed. (laughs) I I I love reading this. I I I love reading that articles and I'm loving hearing her describe it even more.
0: It's terrifying.
1: I, Thank you, you know, for it's being like... part of Coronation Bath, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it is, I tell my husband, this is my guilty ple- pleasure. You know, this is something I do solely for me, and the four kids can be screaming forever. And this is what I do for me, so I enjoy it. And, you know, to have people listen to me talk about volleyball, what a dream!
0: 20 shots. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to come back. And we're back with the Five Heart Podcast with me as your host, John Johnston, and not those other two sons of bitches who just constantly drag me down all the time. But I'm joined by two beautiful women on our website. And by the way, if we, you know... I'm always game for more women writers. If there's more of you guys that want to come in and write about whatever you want to write about, just let me know. Uh, Jill, what are we going to talk about?
1: Oh, well, you know, we are ending a decade here. Do we Do we want to look back a little bit? And I know that, that your memory is somewhat distorted, but, you know, some of us still can... Remember back to the early parts of this decade when things were a little brighter at times for football anyway Beth well, volleyball's had a great decade, so i'm <laughs> I'm fine talking about this decade. <laughs> I haven't always been following Nebraska sports as closely. My husband and I just got married 10 years ago, so I only became a fan 10 years ago. So I guess I have this decade under my belt, but it took me a while to turn over to a Husker fan. You're a native of this decade, yes. Women's basketball, 2010 was that undefeated team. You know, it started off pretty well.
0: for you got married, you're married 10 years now. Yes. Are you a fan of all the sports or just volleyball?
1: Well, I've watched a lot of football with them. I don't know if I can say I'm a true fan. Cause it's not, I mean, am I right? It's not been a great decade. I don't know. Uh, could be making some it's,
0: it's not been a wrong statements
1: here. I don't know. Um, it's but I have watched a lot of football with them. Um, I can't say I've watched a lot of other sports for Nebraska, just mainly the volleyball.
0: Jill, would it be safe to say that it hasn't been a great decade for Nebraska football except for the friends we made along the way?
1: (laughs) Cherish those few memories where, you know, Kenny Bell throws a blindside block in the middle of Nebraska getting its but kicked badly because that's all we got for this decade.
0: Oh, we joined the Big Ten, and we it's been—I think a year
1: from now it's a decade. So we'll probably yeah. do some more decade stuff next year.
0: And our our, our last year in the Big Twelve was like uh, they really wanted to give it to
1: us. Oh, no, yeah, I just finished, or I'm working on the ballots for the the uh, best and worst moments of Husker football for the decade, and, and I, I need to give credit where credit is due. Nate McHugh is the one who came up with this idea. Um, it's just that he's in the middle of coaching basketball, so, so I'm the one who's pulling some of it together, but he did a lot of the initial legwork that it's going to look like I get credit for, but... Yeah, I think the, the the best moments ballot was published today and I'm working on getting ready to publish the the worst ones tomorrow and by the time you guys hear this, it may be closed already. But yeah, that 2010 game against Texas A&M, I started listing the reasons why that's on the worst moments of the decade and there are so many. You start with... Uh, you know, Taylor Martinez getting injured and getting yelled at by Bo Pelini on the sideline and, like, getting poked in the chest and Sam Cotton getting, well, I don't know how to describe what Sam Cotton got in that pile, but he ended up with, what, two personal foul penalties and then a couple of what appear to be phantom penalties on Huskers. Courtney Osborne was it that had the roughing the passer and Eric Martin had a penalty or something that you know i
0: had i had relatives at that game i had relatives i had my brother was at that game and then i had a, a my other brother had a son at that game who was an aggie and uh they both came back after that game and they said even the aggie fans around them were like what is going on with this officiating this is terrible so even the, the Aggie, the A&M fans around them were, like, horrified at how bad the officiating was. You know, and it was, yeah, and then it then was pretty clear that... Like, what's
1: that? And that game ended, what, with a 9-6 to six score? It wasn't even a... I mean, it, it required a lot of work by the officials to do that kind of a score. That's a Big Ten score not a big 12 right you know, and then that was the game where carl pelini got in trouble afterwards for breaking some photographer's camera or trying to i think and it was it was just not a good good situation all around and it really like you said john it looked like uh, the big 12 was telling nebraska yeah you want to leave here's what you get <laughs>
0: It was a job.
1: We'll call it that. That's, yes. <laughs> yeah, it it was not a, it was not a game that anybody remembers fondly for any reason. So, Are there bats- spoiler alert, it appears on the worst moments of Husker football this decade ballot.
0: <laughs> Does it? Well, that's oh, yeah. Good. Okay. That
1: in losing to Texas in the red out around the world game the same year.
0: Was that the one where Terrence numb, fumbled? No.
1: Oh, oh gosh. There's no, been a I lot of
0: bad times.
1: The... Yeah, no, I think that was just, yeah, that, I don't know. I need to look that one up more now, because I I don't remember the specifics of the game, just that we lost a game that was super hyped, and Texas was bad, and we were supposed to win, and that was one of Bo Pelini's best teams, and and we lost at home.
0: Oh, God.
1: I know, depressing, right?
0: It is. It's been a hard decade for Nebraska football, but we're still here, I guess.
1: We made it yes hopefully there's brighter days ahead you know we're right now we've got what three straight bowl less seasons <coughs> Scott frost era started off oh and six more spoilers for ballot entries we had a lot more entries for the worst moments than best for this decade
0: You know what the best moment is? It, it the best moment has to be uh, the Northwestern Hail Mary. Uh, God, that's not even a. You know that was a nice win, but and then there's uh, Amir Abdullah over McNeese State, which is kind of like tragic because they're not that good a football team. And then yeah, uh,
1: that one's on the best and worst ballots. The fact that he did it and the fact that we needed him to do it are both on the best and worst ballots. Um, Jack Hoffman's touchdown run, I think, is currently leading on the good moment ballot. Well, it should.
0: I mean, that that was a sweet. You know what happened after that? All of the other college football teams started copying them. And so, what it did was it led to a lot more about what college football should actually be about, which is supporting people in their lives, and and oh God, I'm reaching. Yes, it is. It it should be about you know the goodness of college football, whatever. <laughs> You know, out of that did become a, a really good thing. And I guess, you know, that's something to be proud of. It's just the on-the-field on the uh, performance by Nebraska football is – my memory has been destroyed, but I do distinctly remember one moment in my life. And that is? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Give me a minute.
1: That's fine. Yeah, and the reason most people are college football fans is because it is supposedly an amateur sport. You know, it's all about playing a game you love and trying to, you know, play it at a high level. and and being a part of something that's bigger than you. It, it's not about these recruiting stars. It's not about, you know, all this other, these trappings that have, have come to be because we love the game. You know, we, I've heard people talk about loving this game to death, and and in some ways it's true, but, yeah, it, it's... Uh, There's a reason that college football has a place in most of our hearts.
0: I remember standing at, uh, you know, years ago when you were a student in Nebraska, you didn't have the shitty fucking horrible seats that they have now. Tom Osborne took those students and stuck them up in the corner of the stadium. And the reason why is because he's like, oh, we can sell better seats to everybody else. When I was there as a student, I had a seat at the 20-yard line that was up on the the east side of the stadium, okay? It was a great student section. We were mostly – well, I didn't get horribly drunk for most of those games, but a lot of my friends got horribly drunk. But I do. I, I the one moment I do remember that was very personal to me was I could tell you stories about being in the student section, being you know, and I've written about the nineteen eighty two Oklahoma Nebraska or Oklahoma game, which I went out and tore down the goalpost and almost died. But um, one moment that's very personal to me is standing there and watching all of this stuff going on and standing on a bleacher, you know, those wooden seats and standing there and thinking there will be a time which Nebraska is not this good anymore because all good things come to an end. And I thought to myself, what will we be then? Who will we be Nebraska? Who, how will we still, you know, the fight song says, We'll stick together in all kinds of weather. But I thought when we now we're going through five and seven and four and eight, and I guess we're still sticking together. Maybe sometimes not because we don't know what else to do, but because we're hopeful. But I remember standing there and looking up the stadium and just standing there and Letting all of that sink in, all of that just wonderful Nebraska football kicking ass under Tom Osborne and realizing we're not going to be here forever. We're not. And now we're where we are, and I hope people still love us, and I hope people still stick together like we're supposed to. When I write my articles, I say we a lot because I am a Nebraska alum. And to me, it's my fucking university. It is my state. It is my place. It is my, you know, there is no place like Nebraska.
1: Yeah, you're correct. My rant for this
0: podcast.
1: Well, you know, I think Beth and I both like can can relate. We we moved into the state and you sort of are absorbed. Resistance is futile. Right, Beth? Yeah, I mean it's everywhere. I mean we have neighbors all around us in Scottsbluff that are true Nebraska fans and we live a long ways from the University of Nebraska, but they they love it. Like we live there and they drive there for games and um yes they are they are just fans, pure and simple well, yeah, I mean I moved to I'm not an alumni like you, John, but they gave me my first job out of college, you know, and now they're educating my oldest child, yeah, how can you not be a husker through and through, right?
0: So, Beth, what happened this week is, um, you know, I live in Minnesota. My rotten son goes to Minnesota. His girlfriend is in the Minnesota marching band. And yesterday, they're at my house, and my wife is explaining Nebraska to the girlfriend. Sorry. And she says, whenever you go into a store in Nebraska, literally 50% of the people or 75% of the people are wearing... Nebraska. They're wearing red shirts. They're wearing Nebraska stuff. And that's how it is.
1: That's true. It's <laughs> very true. I'm chuckling to myself because I'm picturing multiple situations where people are just wearing sweatshirts and, and garb in situations that it, it really shouldn't be happening. Weddings. I've seen people wear this stuff to weddings. And, and, they're, and it's they're okay. They're because it's the University TV. of Nebraska. Yes. <laughs>
0: It's and the weddings are gathered
1: around the TV in the side room watching the game until they absolutely have to go do their obligation for the wedding. <laughs> yeah, it's and, not and, and you walk into a store and there's speakers playing the game. And, and this is the part that I, I have a whole series of photos that I've never used on Carnation that I really need to start doing more with but everywhere I go, people will have this little thing. Like you just drive through any town and there will be a large chunk of the houses that have some red end in front of the house. It could be the stepping stones and the landscaping. It could be a little flag. It could be their mailbox painted with it. It could be something painted on the side of the garage. It could be, you know, some sign it It's just, it's not overwhelming, but it is, it's there. It's just the fabric of the state. And it is, it, it, it's interesting. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's interesting in a good way.
0: Well, we have a whole off-season to discover why that is. I personally think it's because Nebraska is such a a damned hard place to live. You know what I mean? When we first started Nebraska, you know, Beth, you live in Scotts Bluff. Imagine what it would be like when in 1880 when those people were moving through and trying to settle that place. They had to give land away so that people could live there. Nebraska was a homestead state. People literally people that the government said if you can live on this land for 5 years you can have it. That's how desperate they were to give Nebraska away to people who could have their own ownership of land. And I think that that it, it establishes some kind of grit and toughness in a, in a people and it's been passed on for generations and I don't know, part of our problem may be finding what that grit is I maybe we're cursed
1: have to wander in the wilderness for a while every now and then
0: <laughs> yeah we have an entire off season to explore this all right. Do we yeah, have anything
1: else? I'll have a very merry Christmas.
0: Oh, we're supposed to end this with uh, something.
1: <laughs> I know what it is.
0: Dude, okay, then you do it, Jill. No, that's,
1: that's best. Best. It's it's that. because she knew I what it was. There's two parts to it, though. But I, I've learned this in my. This is my third podcast with everybody, so I'll do the first part. So I say, go Big Red. Win the damn game.
0: Win the offseason. There you go. It's the end of the Five Heart Podcast, hosted by your crappiest host ever, John Johnson. Woo!
1: This is a production of the Jittery Monkey Podcast Network. For more jittery shenanigans, go to jitterymonkey.com.